It's good to be with you tonight. Um, it's nice to not have a, a long drive to, to get to a place that you're preaching um, as a guest preacher. And yeah, I do live on the south side, so it uh, wasn't too bad of a commute. Um, you all are frequently in our prayers on the south side and, and um, looking forward to what God has for you next. Uh, well, what God has for us tonight is Micah chapter 2. And so I'd invite you to, to turn with me. Um, in the scriptures to the second chapter of Micah. Micah is one of the minor prophets, um, the sixth out of twelve there at the end of the uh, Old Testament. Easy to miss, it's just a couple of pages in your Bible, but once you've read it and digested it, you won't soon forget it. Just a little bit of background, you'll see up there in Micah 1, 1, that uh, Micah's ministry was long, um, minimum of about 30 years, maybe as long as 50 years. It was in the south, it was in Judah. It was um, to uh, several kings. It was in a period of, of um, challenge and difficulty for God's people in a number of ways. We'll get into some of that tonight. Uh, but tonight we're reading Micah chapter 2. Let's listen to God's word together. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away your splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will, assuredly, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. The Lord bless His Word read and preached to us tonight. Uh, 
A nickname can tell us a lot about a person, maybe not so much, but can at least tell us something about a person. Uh, when I was young, I played baseball with a boy whose nickname was Biscuit. And, and you might guess that he was maybe a little bit too fond of biscuits. And then later on, I went to a school with uh, a guy named Neck, and it was because the circumference of his neck was about the same as his head. And my own name was, nickname was Speedy, because I wasn't. So you see how that worked. It's the opposite of what you might think. Um, nicknames are like that. Well, I wouldn't say that the Lord is necessarily given nicknames in the Bible, but we may come close here in this chapter. If you look down at verse 13, um, at the ESV has it, He who opens the breach, and we could easily translate that, the breaker, or the smasher. That is the name given to the Lord uh, and what He does for His people. And we're eventually going to get there and talk about that. But before we get there to that good news that the Lord is our breaker, whatever that means, we'll find out. But before we get to that good news, the Lord has some issues to address with us, some, some serious issues that He wants to talk to us uh, about in this chapter. And, and so if you want a, a one-sentence summary of what we're going to say tonight, it's this, that our problems are real and serious, but God provides a real solution. Our problems are real and serious, but God provides a real solution. And, and Micah here in this chapter, he, he says there are at least three problems that you need to face about yourself. So three problems, and we'll talk about those three before we get to the solution at the end. And, and the first of those three problems that, that uh, Micah confronts us with is that we have a possessions problem. We have a possessions problem. And Micah sketches this out uh, in, in some detail here in this chapter. It's an issue that once we kind of seize on it, we realize it's something that still goes on today. And you notice how it's introduced to us in the opening couple uh, of verses. Those who are devising wickedness and working evil on their beds. In other words, uh, while they're in bed at night, they're, they're dreaming of what their hearts love. And as it turns out, what their hearts love is stuff. It's things. And, and not just their own things, but other people's things. Verse 2 says, They covet fields and they seize them, they covet houses, and they take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. And so what Micah is talking about are, are those within the covenant community. These are people who would have called themselves servants of God. These were people who were in positions of power and wealth and, and had the opportunity to um, squeeze those who were less fortunate to take advantage of those who were more vulnerable and to find ways um, for other people's property and things to become their property and things. And you might uh, imagine in our own situation uh, today, someone who, who knows um, uh, property laws really well and he knows the right people. He knows the right officials to talk to. And, and those who, um, because of their own poverty, might be in a, a, a difficult situation and, 
and, and eviction maybe is on the way, and, and these wealthy and powerful know how to leverage these situations to their own advantage. And you can see how bad it is as you shift down to verses 9 and 10 that this is affecting the, the least and the, and the, the last of God's people, um, the, the most exposed uh, of God's people, the women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children, you take away my splendor forever. So God makes very clear that not only is this not okay, but that God hates this kind of behavior. He, ta- he hates it when people use their power to take advantage of the powerless. And, and, and be encouraged here tonight from this chapter that God is the champion of the powerless. He's the helper of those who don't have help from any other um, um, place. And, and he won't allow that oppression to continue. He won't allow exploitation to go on forever. He will bring it to a stop. Bruce Waltke has a, an interesting comment on this point. He says, that, he says that if you're poor because of your own folly or your own character flaws, then you need to pray to God, your Savior, to change your heart and to change your ways. And, and if you're poor because of maybe poverty and famine, you need to call on God, your Creator, to, to give life to the land again, uh, life to um, um, the economy again, so that you can um, find a fresh start. And he said this, but if you're poor because of tyrants, you can pray to God the judge, who will punish and deliver. We thank God that we have a God who cares, a God who is just and upright and who cares about the little people. Now, everything we've said so far, really easy for us to think about all the people who aren't here in this room tonight who would need to hear a message like that. But Micah doesn't let us off quite so easy, does he? Because he he traces back this this activity, these these deeds of theirs, he traces these deeds back to a heart matter. And you see what the heart matter is at the beginning of verse 2. They covet. They covet. It's a really humbling thing, isn't it, to realize that the only difference between us and them is often opportunity. Because covetousness is all around us, and not only is it all around us, but it's all inside us too, isn't it? And it may be that the only difference between me and my position and and the position of of those in power and and wealth who are able to, 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 to do these wicked deeds is they are able to do it, and I'm only able to think about doing it. So what can we say about about covetousness? Well, it's a common sin, isn't it? It's a very common sin. And and think for a moment about that commandment. It's the last of the commandments. It's the tenth, isn't it? And and in some ways, it's the most specific. It's specific in ways that um, the other commands aren't. For, For one, there's this repetition, right, that we don't find in the other nine. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife 
nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. There's a specificity in this command, isn't there, that, that tells us something about our hearts that God would have to say, um, no, you can't do that, and no, it, it's not okay to do it this way, and no, covetousness is not okay in this form, and no, it's not okay in that form either. There's something about us that requires that kind of approach in this command. It's because it's such a very common sin. You might remember that Jesus uh, warns us in, in Luke chapter 12. He says, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. It's a common sin. It's the sin that snagged the rich young ruler, wasn't it? He was able to stand before the Lord Jesus and say, uh, look, I, from my youth I have kept all of these laws. And Jesus looks at the tenth, doesn't he? Of all the ones he could have chosen, he looks at the tenth and says, well, if this is true, go and sell all your possessions and give them to the poor and come and follow me. And he wasn't able to do that, was he? Because he was what? He was wealthy and he loved his things. And Paul, of course, we know Paul from Romans chapter 7. That's the commandment that, that snagged him. In a sense, you know, after searching his own heart, uh, commandment by commandment, it was the tenth, it was the last one that, that caught him, that, that awoke in him and showed him his own sinfulness, his own need for a Savior. It was that common sin of covetousness. It's a sneaky sin, too, isn't it? It's a sneaky sin, and what I mean by that is we can take it into our prayers pretty easily. James puts it this way. He says, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss to consume it on your own lusts. Even in your prayers, you take, you take covetousness into your prayers and, and you say, Lord, it would be really nice. I could really use this. You haven't given it to me yet. I'm sure that was just an oversight. Thomas Manton says, How often we come to God with our selfish aim as if we would draw God into our own designs and purposes. It's a sneaky sin. How do we know if covetousness is a serious problem for us? Well, uh, obviously there's the salivating after that which we don't yet have, which God has not seen fit to give us. There is the going to sleep at night and, and dreaming about and waking up in the morning. It's the first thing we think of as, as, as those uh, in verse 1 did. But it's also more subtle than that, isn't it? We can look down at our hands and how tightly, how white are our knuckles? How tightly are we grasping onto those things that are already ours? That's a good gauge, actually. It's not strictly covetousness, maybe strictly speaking, but it's a good gauge, isn't it? Because if we are 
holding on so tightly to the things that God has, has given us that we're not able to be generous with others and not, and not able to be generous with God. And we don't see these things as a stewardship, as something that God has given to us and trusted to us for us to use well and use wisely, then that's a pretty good sign that covetousness has found uh, a stronghold in our hearts. And it's not only a common sin and a sneaky sin, but it's a serious sin, isn't it, too? Because Paul warns us about covetousness. He says, flee it, and he says, put it to death, because covetousness is idolatry. It's idolatry. It's just another way that we worship a false god. It's just another way that you and I allow something closer to our hearts than the Lord. So Micah says here, we have a possessions problem. But then, two, we have a preacher problem. We have a preacher problem. Now, those who were listening to Micah would have said, well, I finally agree with something that you've said tonight. Yeah, we have a preacher problem. Our problem is this Micah guy who won't shut up. And that's the preacher problem, actually, isn't it? That they don't like his preaching. Now, verses 6 and 7 are a little bit difficult, a little bit confusing to follow because the quotation marks are really important, like who's speaking, when. But, but, but here's the response in verse 6 to what Micah has been saying. They say, stop it. Stop this preaching. Do not preach these things. One should not preach such things. And specifically, what things are they talking about? Well, the judgment that he's been, uh, and the sin that he's been uncovering. He says, they say, disgrace will not overtake us. In other words, the judgment that you say is coming, it's not coming. You're preaching falsely to us. This is not true. We are the blessed of the Lord. We are the covenant people of God. And there's nothing that gets in the way of that. Don't preach these things. And then in verse 7, again, a little bit confusing, but Micah says to them, should you say this? Or should this be said of, of, of the Lord? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these His deeds? In other words, they're questioning whether God can ever come to an end of His patience. They're questioning whether God can ever bring deeds of judgment against His people. In other words, they don't like to hear about sin and judgment in their preaching. Give us sermons about love. Give us sermons that we enjoy. Give us sermons about blessing. And I think that's what he means in verse 11. He says, well, if, if you find a preacher that will talk about wine and strong drink, that you will have a popular preacher. These folks will love it if you can find a preacher like that. And I don't think it's just that, oh, um, they're, they're looking for someone who will preach on their favorite topic. I think it's probably more the fact that, that they equate an abundance of drink with um, abundance in, in all of life, with prosperity. Preach to us about prosperity. Preach to us about blessing. Preach to us about God's love. Uh, Put it a different way, um, if, if preaching were a radio station, they would want to be tuned in to the easy listening station 
at all times. Easy listening only. None of this hard stuff. We don't want this kind of preaching. We know that the old preacher's adage is afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Go ahead and comfort the afflicted, but we want you to affirm the comfortable. Affirm us in the life that we're presently engaged in. And, and you see how that doesn't really line up very well with Micah's message. Micah preaches, and there's always comfort and hope mixed in, but a lot of it is about their sin, and a lot, a lot of it is about judgment. And you see, we need both, don't we? We need both, but we don't like both. We don't want to hear much about the other side, if I could put it that way, the other side of God's character. We want to hear that God is gracious and merciful and full of compassion, but we don't want to hear that He's holy and just and that He is a God who brings judgment upon sin. In other words, um, we like the beginning of, of that great declaration of God in Exodus 34. We like, we like verse 6 especially. The verse says that the Lord is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We like that verse, but we don't really like the next verse, do we? Which says that He by no means clears the guilty that he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We don't want to hear about that side of God, but we need to hear both sides, don't we? We need to hear. We've got to hear both sides in order to, to have a, a scriptural God, to have the God who exists. And, and again and again, uh, history shows, doesn't it, that, that God's people react very negatively to those who preach consistently the both sides. Jesus got in trouble for doing so. The apostles got run out of town for doing so. There's a story of uh, Lachlan McKenzie uh, preaching in the uh, highlands of Scotland in the early 1800s, getting in trouble uh, for, for this as, as well, along the same uh, topic that we were talking about, these land barons who find ways to become more and more wealthy at the expense of others, um, there were these great uh, landowners, and, and they had tenant farmers who lived on their land and lived on their land for generations. And, and these tenant farm, these um, landowners began to realize that they could make more money if they pushed the tenant farmers off their land and replaced it with more um, land for sheep to graze on. And uh, Mackenzie uh, took these wealthy landowners to task. In fact, several of them were present in his congregation when he preached not just a sermon, but a series of sermons on this topic. And the response after he finished this series was one of these landowners threatened him with a lawsuit. And another one said, you keep this up and I'll turn your house into a sheep pen. Yeah. Um, sweet, respectable church people can turn really ugly when you start pointing out sin. But we've got to talk about it, don't we? And, and if you like talking about God's wrath, um, 
I'm just going to go out and say it. There's a problem with you if you like talking about God's wrath. It doesn't even feel like God likes talking about his own wrath. And, and we feel that tension, don't we? Sometimes I sing certain psalms, and, and I have to admit, I feel it with certain parts of certain psalms where it's, it's about the wrath of God. It's about the judgment of God. It's so heavy, isn't it? And it would be easier if I could avoid those parts of the psalms. In fact, I know of efforts to do that, to have psalm portions sung, but not whole psalms sung. But if you don't have a whole God, then you don't have a gospel, do you? As soon as you start talking about salvation, someone who doesn't know any better might ask the question, well, what exactly are you saved from, after all? Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus have to suffer so much? Surely it must be for some good reason. What was the good reason? Well, it was, it was our sin, and it was his justice, his holiness. It was being just and the justifier of those who were unjust. So we, we need it, don't we? We need uh, this kind of preaching that preaches both sides. Otherwise, the cross doesn't make sense. Otherwise, the cross is a cruel joke at the hands of a cruel God if we don't understand the reality of who God is and, and, and all His attributes. So we have a preacher problem. And as you hear preaching that doesn't quite suit your fancy, that doesn't quite focus as much as you would like on the love of God, remember, remember, these days, these people in Micah's day that said, stop preaching like that. We need it. So we have a possessions problem, we have a preacher problem, and apart from the grace of God, we have a punishment problem, don't we? We have a punishment problem. What's, what's going to come of these covetous people? What's going to come of these unrepentant money lovers? One word, disaster. Verse 3, it will be a time of disaster. And if you back up earlier in verse 3, we find that the Lord says, I am devising disaster, and, and he, mimics their, he mimics their language, doesn't he? In verse 1, they're devising wickedness. Meanwhile, he's devising disaster. And this is a disaster that they won't be able to, to escape. Rich people are used to getting out of binds, aren't they? We read that in the news, and we think, oh, that guy's toast. And then a few months later, it's behind him. He somehow got out. He's not doing jail time. Somehow he, was, uh, he made it go away. This happens all the time for, for rich and powerful people. But, but God says in verse 3, you will not be able to remove this from your neck. You will not be able to walk haughtily. After this, this judgment is coming. It will find you and it will rest upon you and it will be the worst thing that you have ever experienced. Um, he, he mocks them in verse 4. He says, your enemies are going to mock you and say, we, we are utterly ruined. That's going to be the situation for these unrepentant. And it's interesting. This is something I've noted as I've studied in the 
of Micah, how often Micah points out the appropriateness of the specific judgment. And what I mean by that is, well, look at verse 4. Look at what they're bemoaning. Look at what they're grieving. They're grieving the fact that they are ruined. And how are they ruined? Well, they're ruined because others have taken away their fields and inheritance. It's the Assyrians. The Assyrians have come into Judah. And this is what they've done. They have taken up the possessions and property of these wealthy who formerly took the possessions and property of others. And now these wealthy are grieving, uh, sorrowing because the very thing that they had inflicted upon others has come upon them. God has a way of doing that. Whether you call it um, live by the sword, die by the sword, or getting your just desserts, whatever you call it, it is the justice of God at work. And it's a fearful thing for the ungodly. It's a fearful thing for the unrepentant. And perhaps most chilling is verse 10. Do you understand what the Lord is saying to these people in verse 10? He's saying, this is not your home anymore. This promised land, you call yourself one of the people of God. This is not your home anymore. Get out. Depart from me. I never knew you. This is not your resting place. You see, this is news that we need to hear, isn't it? This is news we need to hear because these are people who call themselves believers. These are people who were in the church on Sunday morning. But there was no carryover from Sunday morning to the rest of the week. They delighted to think of God's love. But his lordship meant nothing to them. And if Jesus' lordship doesn't mean anything to you, then there's no reason to think that you are a, a, a beneficiary of his love either. And so, apart from Christ, apart from repentance and faith in Christ, we have a punishment problem. But, but the chapter closes with a solution. It, 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 it closes with a, a solution that's provided and offered in Christ. And it's so sudden, isn't it, this shift from verse 11 to 12 that, that uh, even someone like John Calvin actually kind of tries to explain verses 12 and 13 as, as further speech of judgment instead of um, speech on deliverance. It's such a sudden shift, but it's, it's sudden in order to to highlight the amazingness of the grace of God. That these same people that, that he could speak words of, 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 of coming judgment to, he, he still at the same time is offering them a way of escape. He's saying, look, there's, there is great and, and terrible, um, awful stuff coming your way, but there's still a way for you to find refuge in the Lord. 
And, and in verses 12 and 13, what we really have are two pictures, two pictures that, that, are, um, that they, uh, they, they show the saving work of Christ, and, and two pictures that really relate to the circumstances of the people as this judgment was pressing in upon them. The Assyrians are coming. And what's going to happen, um, what would typically happen if, if an enemy army would come your way, would attack your city, would attack your nation? Uh, well, well, two things would, would happen. Generally, you would be displaced and, and you would be basically enslaved. You would be displaced, you would be uprooted, you would be scattered from your home, and you would become a slave, you would become a captive to the foreign army. And here Micah holds out the promise of salvation in, in, in a way that gives answer to those two great problems that are approaching the people of God via the Sumerians. He says, in answer to the scattering, I will gather you up. And in answer to your enslavement, I will break you out. And so two wonderful pictures of the work of Christ here. He gathers us up. He gathers up the scattered, and he breaks out the enslaved. So let's think about those, each one, just for a moment. The Assyrian uh, is coming. Uh, many of them are going to be uprooted. They're going to be dispersed. And, and here he is going after the, the sheep. Here he is going after the wandering and lost sheep of Israel and, and gathering them up. And, 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 he, and he's just adamant that he's going to do this. He says, I will surely assemble. Literally, assembling, I will assemble and gathering I will gather. It's just a kind of a Hebrew way of, of saying this will certainly happen. I will, I will, I will do this thing. I will bring back those who have been scattered. And of course, you and I who, who, who know how sin works, we know that sin scatters, doesn't it? Sin isolates us from one another. It alienates us from one another. It puts us on an island by ourselves. And, and if you watch people who fall into sin and give themselves to sin and, and don't repent, you see them becoming more and more isolated from those they were formerly close to. That's what sin does. It scatters, it displaces, it uproots. And here is Christ saying that I will come and I will bring you back and I will gather you in and I will make you part of a people, part of a flock. And, and you may be a remnant and there are going to be a lot of those who are lost because they, they don't repent. You're going to be a remnant, but you're going to be a multitude of a remnant. You can imagine all these sheep being gathered together and they're making noise because there's so many of them. And he says... Uh, like a noisy multitude of men they will be. Um, Kyle, the old German commentator, he says this, he says, Christ gathers his Israel to himself by the preaching of the gospel. In every generation, the Lord is doing that in his church, isn't he? He's gathering the lost sheep. He's bringing together those who don't have a home, 
who don't have a resting place, who have been pushed away because of sin, who have pushed everyone else away because of sin, given a family, given a home at long last. Here's what the Lord Jesus does in the gospel, and the church is a great picture of that, isn't it? That's why why we love to be here in God's house worshiping and having fellowship because we recognize the Lord has gathered us together. He's given us something special here. He's he's given His his own Son to us, and He's brought us in and made us a people. He's made us a family. And so He gathers us who are scattered, and, and then He also frees us who are in bondage. Because of the Assyrians, many could expect imprisonment, could expect captivity. Um, The king of the Assyrians, Sennacherib, he claims, he boasts that uh, on this particular campaign that he took 200,000 people of Judah back with him. That may be exaggerated, but we can be sure that number is at least close. Many were taken away. Verse 13 tells us that we've got a breaker on our side. The breaker will go up before them. He will break them out and pass through the gate, going out by it. Their king passes before them, the Lord at their head. This breaker will lead them to escape. There won't be any prison. You understand if, you're, if, if you have Christ, there's no prison. There's no prison of your own making that Christ can't break you out of. Is there some sin that's too strong for Christ? Someone who's nicknamed Bruiser? Your sin is too strong for him? No, not at all. Christ comes, and, and, and let me tell you who appreciates a verse like this. If you've seen the power of sin to enslave you, if you've felt the accusations of God's law, as it says, guilty, 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 if you've felt your conscience shouting at you day after day because of sin that you've committed. Here's good news. that You have someone who can break you out of the bondage of sin and can give you freedom, can give you liberty in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your sins are not too strong for him. I have a very good friend We've been friends for many, many years, and he is a very large man. A few of you know him. Very large man. Years ago, we were going to a pastor's conference together as a group of us, some pastors, seminary students, um, and, and we decided to stop at this establishment, and um, the longer we were there, uh, the louder it got, and the more crowded this place got. And, and the rowdier this place got. 
And you can imagine these pastors and seminary students kind of looking around and thinking, things are getting kind of crazy in here. And this very large friend looked at us around the table and he said this. He said, if things get sideways in here, I'm going to plow a hole to the exit. And all you have to do is follow me. Thankfully, he didn't have to do that, but I fully believed that he could have plowed a hole to the exit. We have a breaker in the Lord Jesus Christ who can do just that for us. That's the story of the gospel, isn't it? One who has come to break us out of our chains and to gather us together and make us a people for himself. We can rejoice in that tonight, can't we? Would you uh, stand with me? We'll pray. Father, we confess to you tonight that our, our problems are many. Our problems are in our own hearts and lives. These are often problems of our own making. These are the worst of the problems that we face. Lord, we confess these to you. We confess that uh, we, they are too big for us to handle. We confess that we have given far too much of life to um, the pursuit of sin and self. We have um, desired what you have not chosen to give us. We have, we have um, chased after things and pursued things given our heart to things, love things far more than we love you. Father, our problems are many, but we thank you tonight. We rejoice in a Savior who is far greater than our problems, who is far stronger than all of our troubles. And we thank you that we have one who has come to be the most powerful deliverer and Savior that we could ever imagine. We thank you that there is no uh, problem, no obstacle, no trouble, no issue that is too great for him to handle. Father, we rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight and pray in his name.